0: Hey, welcome to the Fictor Podcast. My name is Mikey Mahanna. Today we have another episode in our Matbakh series, which is all about food and drink from the Arab world. Our special guest is Daniel Newman, who is a food historian, and this episode is hosted by Selma City. If you want to watch this interview, go over to YouTube and watch it on our YouTube channel. I hope you enjoy the conversation.
1: Professor Daniel, I am so happy and honored to have this conversation with you today. Welcome.
2: Thank you very much. Great to be here.
1: Thank you. So Professor Daniel um, is the Director of Studies in the School of Modern Languages and Cultures um, at Durham University in the UK. His interest in food is related to his research into medieval Islamic medicine, especially sexuality and erotology, which resulted in a book uh, on aphrodisiacs in the Middle Ages, uh, entitled the Sultan's Sex Potions. He recently completed an edition uh, and translation of a magnificent fifteenth-century cookbook um, or cookery manual would be the proper way to to perhaps describe it. Entitled uh, as Zahr uh, al hadiqa fi al ataima al Anika, translates to Garden Flowers in Elegant Foods, uh, and it contains over three hundred amazing recipes. He has uh, widely published uh, a number of books uh, on Arabic geographical and travel literature with special focus on Arabic travels to Europe in the 19th century. And in 2009, he was the co-recipient of the award um, uh, of the president of the Republic of Tunisia for Islamic studies for the book entitled Muslim Woman and Law and Society. He has other works including an Imam in Paris, Arabic English thematic lexicon, Modern Arabic Short Stories, and A to Z of Arabic-English Arabic Translation and Arabic-English Arabic Translation. uh, Two books, um, one on uh, perhaps a general, uh, one and the other one is the issues and strategies specific, and a final book on Rifaa Rifaa al tahtawi a 19th century Egyptian educationalist and reformer. Um, A very warm welcome to you, uh, Professor Daniel. I would love to know how your interest first um started in in Arabic literature but also in food and perhaps how your um career journey has changed over time.
2: Um yes that's uh, uh that's a good word journey. Um it's been a journey uh, on a very uh, winding uh, road um with plenty of turns and um, plenty of uh, unexpected uh, uh, departures and, and arrivals. Um, well, I, I, um, I did a degree in Arabic language and, and literature, a um, graduate of SOAS. And um, it's already when I was a student that I developed uh, an interest in, in geographical uh, literature. And, um, of course, the link uh, between um, travellers, travel writing, and intercultural contact is is a very obvious one, a very narrow one. Um, And then um, I also, um, being involved in in translation studies, um, developed an interest in the history of of translation studies, Um, and this of course particularly is always with a link to Arabic, and of course this uh, means that you started thinking about the translation movement in the Middle Ages, as well as the one 19th century afterwards, Um, and um, this also was linked to work I was doing on uh, medieval Islamic medicine, and of course the translation movement, many of the uh, works that were translated, were in uh, medicine, um, and of course, it is thanks to these translation to Arabic that many of the original Greek works that had been lost in uh, in uh, in Europe that they subsequently, following translation of the Arabic words into Latin, slightly later, so the 12th, 13th centuries, uh, that um, Europe once again gained access to to that uh, to that heritage, and um, you can't really uh, research. Um, Islamic medicine uh, without also researching food. Um, without going into detail, it's, it's of course part of, uh, or the approach is one that, we, we, that is known as the humoral system developed by the ancient Greeks, think of people like Hippocrates and of course the great Galen. And um, so it's a very holistic approach to, to health. Uh, within which food occupies a central role. So initially, they um, were inspired by the the, the Greeks. So as I said, people like Galen, but also Dioscorides, of course, the great botanist. But uh, Arabic scholars, uh, I say Arabic because obviously not all of them were Arabs. They wrote in Arabic, but they were not all Arabs. Uh, Nor were they all Muslims, of course. Uh, Ibn Sina uh, was uh, Persian. And we have uh, people like uh, Ibn Butlan, who, of course, was a Christian. Yeah. So, but they all wrote in Arabic. And um, the uh, Arabic scholars greatly developed and enhanced that system. And um, so this is, this is how um, I, I really got into uh, food, if you will, uh, as well as being a, a natural foodie. Uh, as well um, and um, i've been fortunate in that I've traveled widely and and lived in a in a variety of places and um, food has always been uh, uh, a particular interest and so it's it's in a way uh, this wonderful uh, combination of of a, a passion uh, which which then has informed my my research work
1: that's an amazing journey um... And I love what it resulted in and um, the knowledge you were able to share with us throughout, Um, especially (laughs) my favorite, uh, the Sultan's Feast. Um, I'm going to go back to its Arabic title, Zahra al-Hadiqa fi al-Ata'ama al-Aniqa, right? And I love these medieval titles, the Arabic medieval titles, because there's this um, poetics and rhyming play playfulness of words um, that perhaps were um, we don't see as much these days um, and maybe largely it kind of tells us more about the use of language in of course uh, literature at large but also in cookbooks specifically um, and you know especially that given the fact that perhaps cookbooks are often overlooked as a legitimate source or a genre of literature uh, in its own right and, you know, um, that deserves its own field of studies even. Um, so in, in your opinion, um, what can language tell us about food and uh, in extension about history?
2: Um, a great deal. Um, and um, if we we go to the um, the, the, the title again, uh, of course this is a, a, a very classical Arabic device you know Uh this this play on on sound uh, which we have I mean a, any kind of medieval Arabic work has these wonderful titles which in and of themselves often don't really mean that much, but it's it's all about the sound and it's about i guess uh, a mood that's that's being created um and in the cookery books we have a, a, an interesting an interesting split actually we have cookery books that that have these elegant titles uh so aniq <laughs> um like the uh, uh, the the sultan's feast um, or el musla ila al fi wasf al Mm-hmm. Uh, but then others um, have a much more prosaic, a much more uh, down-to-earth title and simply, you know, Book of Cookery, or Kitab um, tabir. And so I think this already gives us a little indication as to the type of literature that we're, we're dealing with. And so it's by no means a homogenous uh, genre. Um, mm-hmm. If we look at what is considered to be the oldest, or although the manuscript, the oldest manuscript doesn't go back as far. the oldest has been placed in the tenth century, uh, that work really um, is the odd one out in in the collection, in that it's a cookery book, but um, much more. It contains poetry. In short, it's it's part of this uh, genre in Arabic literature, which is very difficult to circumscribe, which is, of course, adab. And the word adab in Arabic today, of course, simply means literature. Uh, it can also mean, of course, morals. You know, think of uh, Qism al-Adab, you know, the, uh, <laughs> in Egypt, for instance. Um, but it, it really refers to what we can call etiquette as well, Mm -hmm. Um, etiquette, but etiquette with a moral or moralistic uh, dimension. And so works of Adab are essentially the works of what a a sophisticated gentleman would have to know. And so this should be viewed as uh, in, in civilized company. And so nice stories, good food, good drink, And this genre is clearly visible in in that first book by a man called El Warraq, the bookseller. And then we have other uh, books where, as I say, it's simply cookery book, um, which no longer have such pretensions, if if one can use that word. And so there is a a development also in the genre in terms of um, the intended readership, because, of course, uh, many of the cookery books would also have been used in, in the kitchens. Uh, they, they were not intended uh, to, to be read uh, of an evening. Although the, the book by El Warraq definitely can also be enjoyed in that sense because of its literary dimension. Uh, the other thing that's striking in terms of uh, language, and which tells us a little bit about the development of the genre, is that... In that very same uh, work, there is a considerable medical dimension. Uh, now this medical information was by no means original. This was taken by, from the great works of, um, of uh, medicine by people like Ibn Sina, uh, Errazi, uh, uh, people of that kind, uh, Sabur ibn Sahal and, and, and so on. So from medical and pharmacological literature, But nevertheless, it to me reveals very clearly the origins or one of the two origins of the genre, which is that it grew out of pharmacological literature. And we have actually a number of early pharmacological works that also contain a number of recipes, most famously the work by Ibn Jazla, on whom I've been working for quite a number of years, Mm -hmm. uh, whose work contains over 200 culinary recipes in addition to all of the other uh, entries that one would expect in what is, after all, a pharmacological encyclopedia. Mm. So language in that sense is important. Now, going back to my earlier point about the development in the titles, what is interesting is that we have the Sultan's Feast. But we're now in the 15th century. So we're now, if you like, half a millennium uh, after the, uh, first, uh, the first book by El Warraq. And in fact, of course, many others are known by their titles only. Um, probably they were already being produced earlier. And there's even a wide variety of people that are involved in the writing, which also says something about the importance of food, which then goes back to my point about the connection between food, medicine, general health. So food as, a, as part of a, of, a, of a therapy, so therapeutic uh, uses. Uh, In the 15th century, we have this very uh, literary title, and I think there's two ways in which to interpret that. Either we can say that this is the author uh, trying to make sure that it's clear that he's writing a serious book. It's a work of literature. Or perhaps uh, he is very conscious of the fact that he's part of a tradition. And the traditional element is a very significant one. I think there's a strong case to be made because when it comes to authorship, we're often in a bit of a quandary with the cookery manuals. Mm -hmm. Um, It's very dangerous to my mind to talk in terms of authors and perhaps the word compiler is much more accurate. In the case of uh, the Sultan's Feast, for instance, there's a large number of recipes that can be found in an earlier Egyptian manual Kenzil Fawaid, in mm-hmm. addition to recipes that one can find in al-Wuzayl uh, uh, al-Habib, mm-hmm. uh, as well as uh, in um, uh, Ibn Jazla's work, mm-hmm. um, and of course also recipes um, that are not found in any other source. Right. So I think what we uh, are looking at is. Um, at one point, a kind of common pool of recipes that varied and to which people added recipes uh, with other recipes, of course, falling by the wayside as time went on and time goes on and palates change. And so certain recipes are no longer um, as popular as they used to be, or they are retained, but in a slightly different format. Mm -hmm. Uh, or with different ingredients. And so there's there's a lot going on that we can can talk about in terms of the language that's that's used. The language, of course, also is important in terms of tracing the origins of dishes. And Mm -hmm. so uh, just a few examples. Uh, There was a very, very significant Persian strand in early uh, uh, Arab cooking. And this, of course, came from the Sassanid uh, Empire, which had a very elaborate courtly culture. And so many of the dishes in Elwarak's work, for instance, uh, have Persian names. They're Persian words, uh, particularly all these things like sigbaj uh, and, and so on and so forth. Um, and uh, even the, the names sometimes of, of fruit, zirishk uh, for barberries, um, and so we also find that as time goes on, that earlier substrate also changes. So the terminology uh, changes. Uh, the language, of course, also tells us other things. For instance, um, Egypt uh, is uh, clearly responsible for Kunafa uh, because Kunafa can already be found in Coptic and probably. Uh, goes back uh, much further than that to a- ancient Egypt. We'd have to ask our friend and colleague, Dr. Menna, about that uh, to have confirmation. Uh, and of course, kak. Kak is also uh, a, a, an Egyptian uh, invention, uh, and of course, was already uh, used in, in Coptic to refer to a, a baked uh, loaf or, or, or a cake. Um, And then, of course, there's the other side of the Mediterranean. There's ancient Greece and Rome. And then we have uh, things like, for instance, uh, murri. Mm
0: -hmm.
2: Uh, Murri, uh, which um, is that fermented condiment, the mystery condiment uh, which I, I jo- only recently just recreated uh, one one version of it, not the 40 days in the sun rotting version, uh, because, <laughs> because uh, we don't have that much sunshine in the northeast of England. Uh, so it was a kind of express, <laughs> express version, but, but delicious nonetheless, uh, which probably uh, goes back to the Latin uh, muria, which is brine, and that goes back to the Greek for salty and uh, muris. Um, the
1: li- um li- is what is it called? Liquid, am I pronouncing it right? Likumen. perhaps,
2: Likumen, exactly. It's that liquid is like garum, exactly. It's that part. So, muria, liquid, garum. Okay. It's so it's, it's very close that...
1: to uh, a modern fish sauce. If uh, exactly, you... okay, all right, mm-hmm.
2: exactly. Um, And um, that's one theory, that it goes back to Latin. I, I, however, think that that um, is not quite correct. Um, And other people have said, well, it's the Arabic "mur" bitter, Mm -hmm. um, which uh, makes a lot of sense. I think, actually, that is uh, a valid point. On the other hand, I think it actually goes back to the Akkadian word murru, so the language of the ancient ancient Mesopotamia, so Assyrian, uh, where murru meant bitter taste. Uh-huh. So uh, uh, we have two contenders, if you like, uh, whether it's the Greek-Latin root or whether it's the Mesopotamian root, uh, I'd like to think that it's the Mesopotamian, the ancient Mesopotamian uh, root. Uh-huh. Um, so, yes, uh, it tells us a lot, uh, language tells us a lot about development of the uh, recipes and the cookery books. And by extension, of course, it also tells us a lot because food does, I think, always tell us a lot about the way society uh, is changing.
1: Absolutely. Um, The author of The Sultan's Feast, um, Ibn Mubarak Shah, right? Um, You mentioned in your introduction, which is amazing, by the way, I think it's, uh, one of the most comprehensive introductions on medieval um culinary literature that i, I always refer back to to understand and give a nice context uh, to uh, the the topic at the time but in so in the introduction you mentioned that little is is quite known about him uh, other than the fact that he was a poet and a scholar, yet you were really effectively able to form a nice idea from hints throughout the book about him. Um, what more can you tell us about
2: Shah? Well, he, um, the, the book tells us quite a lot uh, about him in the context that we're talking about. Um, and by extension, it also allows us to gain a, a better insight, I believe, into the, um, uh, authorship, or, or I should correct myself, compilership of yes. the uh, cookery books. And um, so who is Ibrahim Urakshah and why did he write the cookery book is the question that that we should be asking. So here we have a scholar and the, the cookery book um, was written, if you piece all of the information together, to a large extent, as a kind of, excuse me, recipe book that was used in the uh, uh, Ibn Mubarak Shah household. And um, so essentially, just as you or I, uh, when we um, find a recipe that we like, uh, we cook it and we write it down and and it's saved. And uh, if at some point in the future, you feel like eating it, you go back to your, your cookery book. You may ask your friends, um, how do you make that dish, and so forth. You may also copy recipes from other cookery books. So all of this we can find uh, very, very clearly, very obviously in, in uh, um, Ibn Shah's book. He also gives us an insight uh, into um, the type of person he is. So. He, uh, in terms of his socioeconomic background. Mm-hmm. So here if we look at the works of El Warraq, uh, for instance, uh, that it clearly reflects almost exclusively mm-hmm. the, um, the cuisine of the elite, the, right. the, the royal courts. Mm-hmm. And to a lesser or greater extent, that remains uh, the case um, throughout the next five centuries in which the the cookery books are written mm. uh, with some as with some exceptions now Ibn mubarak shah is interesting in that we find the recipes that are very much part of that elite cuisine but we also find a number of recipes that are really there um, to be enjoyed um, in kind of middle, what we today would call middle class households. Mm-hmm. And uh, how do we know this? Well, for instance, he makes very clear references to the fact that, you know I, I taught my my servants to make this dish, but of course, we didn't use this or that ingredient. Um, we replaced it with something cheaper in order to suit our family's income. Amazing. Yeah. so uh, so forget about the musk. Uh, forget about the ambergris. <laughs> forget about uh, the uh, nutmeg or or cinnamon. Use cassia. Use a bit more of something that that is cheaper uh, to get hold of. Well, the idiot. other thing that's quite interesting is that he mentions, for instance, um, and this is almost kind of gold dust for the historian. What is it that people made at home? Because obviously they they. they Um, let's say, people of a lower socioeconomic background, of course, they they didn't have kitchens and so on. So um, what uh, did they uh, do? Uh, What did they eat? And so here, again, he will make references to, uh, even in his household, you know, if you don't don't have time to make this ingredient, just go to the market and purchase ready-made. So that's another, that's another very interesting indication and clue as to how things uh, would, would work. So his book is this wonderful combination of high and um, um, uh, medium brow uh, cuisine, if we can call it that. Mm. And so in that sense, it's, it's very significant. The third element that comes out of the book where he gives some very interesting information, both implicit and explicit, is the, the change that was taking place as a result of Turkish influence. And of course, he's writing at a time when soon, in fact, uh, less than 50 years after his death, of course, the, the Egypt becomes part of the Ottoman Empire. At the time, it's still the Mamluk. And so he mentions, for instance, a number of... Uh, Turkish dishes. And he even, in uh, one on one occasion, he lists a variant of a particular recipe and he says, if you're making it for a Turk, make sure to use some garlic steeped in olive oil. Wow. So this tells us what this tells us that there were enough of them about uh, in order for the author to be aware of these culinary differences. But of course, it also tells us that there was already intercultural contact between the communities. And of course, that is what food is all about. Uh, You can't go to war when you're eating, and war stops when one eats. Um, Arguments stop. Arguments with friends, with loved ones, they stop when we sit down to eat. And so it's that kind of intercultural contact that is also very evident, I think, in, in the cookery books. And then the final strand in that un- intercultural contact, of course, is the, the various ingredients from all over uh, the known world. And so it's clear that there was a lot of contact, um, you know, whether it's, it's uh, pears from this country, whether it's quince from Syria, or whether it's cheese from where, or or of course, uh, the uh, in terms of recipes, um, one of the dishes in in the southern cities, of course, is couscous. Couscous, uh, which by then had travelled from the west to uh, the east, and became very popular. Because at one point, um, it, when the Turkish uh, traveller uh, Evliya Çelebi uh, visits Egypt, he actually talks about couscous being a, a very popular dish uh, amongst the Egyptians. Mm. So it's it's this kind of movement, these intercultural movements that make it such a um, a passionate and and endlessly interesting topic.
1: That's really interesting, absolutely. I mean, i I had a question specific to how the book um, or the manuscript perhaps uh, tells us about the cuisine in ways that that make it different or perhaps similar from other. Uh, or previous medieval cookbooks from the time, from the region, but you mentioned the Turkish influence, for instance, that makes it very specific to the time and very specific to the region or to to Egypt, it's it's locale. Um, What about in the Mamluks time? I mean, Mamluks originated from um, the Kokas, you'd say uh, places like Armenia, modern day, modern day Armenia or modern day uh, Georgia, Circassians as well. Were I assume made up um, a lot of the, uh, the Mamluks uh, population in the army, in the Mamluks army. So what would you say any traces or influences of, of such um, uh, ethnicities uh, that you might have noticed in the book?
2: Um, well there's there's the uh, the recipes I, I i mentioned um one of them being for instance yagurt uh, you know yogurt uh, um, which already can be found in in Kensilfaid uh, which um, dates from the late thirteenth or fourteenth century um, however when it comes to specific areas like the ones you're talking about so circassian food and so on I think that's much more difficult to to pinpoint Um, and of course we don't really know when exactly um, these dishes entered but there's others for instance that generally one can talk about a Turkic influence and there's things like tutmage uh, mm-hmm. which is a, a kind of a pasta, uh, we call it kind of a tagliatelle avant, avant la lettre, if, if, if you will. But any, any more precise than that, I think, is difficult because obviously we, we should be very careful not to apply current geopolitical constellations to, to the past. Because yeah. we're, exactly, we're talking about areas or, or states, nation-states in many cases today, which yeah. cannot necessarily be extrapolated towards, towards a situation in the Middle Ages. And, of course, you know, the, the, uh, when it comes to uh, Ottoman cuisine, Ottoman cuisine itself um, initially was very influenced by um, uh, Arab cuisine. Mm. Um, and the very first, the oldest Ottoman cookery book, of course, was based on um, an Arabic book by a man called El baghdadi Uh, the only one to have survived in an autograph, so written by the man himself from the 13th century, uh, to which uh, the Ottoman author also added other recipes. Um, But then, of course, we enter another phase of the story, and Mm -hmm. it's one where, um, of course, as you know, after the 15th century, we then have no cookery books anymore until the 19th century, and then, of course, Arab cuisine uh, becomes a a different uh, animal altogether. Um, That's a a page from um, the anonymous Andalusian uh, cookery book, 13th century as well.
1: 13th century, that's amazing. Yeah, I mean, I was supposed to flip through the presentation slides earlier, a, a little early, <laughs> earlier uh, than now, but uh, I've been taken by our conversation. And this is from uh, Zahra al right?
2: Exactly. This is the uh, uh, cover of um, Zahra al Hadiqa, al Aniqa. And this is the only known uh, manuscript copy. Uh, That's the the other thing. There there are some um, works that uh, were real bestsellers and of which there are a number of manuscripts and al Habib, for instance, is a good example. Mm -hmm. Um, And in terms of the, uh, now I'm going back to a question you, you raised earlier, a very interesting one, in terms of the appreciation or the literary appreciation or lack thereof of cookery books. Now, generally, this was the case, But then we have, for instance, that same El baghdadi whom I've mentioned. In the British Library, there's a wonderful copy, gold embossed, that was made for the Ottoman Sultan. And so clearly it was considered important enough uh, for for it to be given to the Sultan. And of course, that copy would not have been used in the palace kitchens, one one would imagine.
1: Wow. Yeah, for sure. Not in a, not, you wouldn't have a a golden gilded book on on a, on a humble kitchen counter. (laughs) (laughs) Um, um, I follow your Instagram page um, and I love it. And I think it's amazing. Do you cook historical recipes every day because this is what <laughs> you post almost almost every day a new recipe and um, it just makes me wonder do you how do you have the time and i'm sure the process itself is really interesting to be kind of recreating these recipes and i'm sure it enlightens um you know and informs of things that might be completely different on paper but once you actually make it you yeah. you, you learn so much more
2: Yes, yes, absolutely, and um, uh, one of the things that, I mean, it's, it's been a, a passionate journey, in fact, I, I'm, I should say that I'm very blessed. My, my work is also my hobby, um, and so I'm very, very fortunate uh, in that. And, and originally, the, um, the recreations uh, started as, uh, indeed, as a, as a hobby, and uh, my partner also took to it with great uh, gusto and, and aplomb. And um, But it quickly became uh, much more than that, in that, as you rightly point out, uh, by making the recipes, often I would find out things that the texts had somehow, uh, that had eluded me in the text. Because these recipes, of course, remember that um, they're usually written for chefs. And just as today, when a chef writes a recipe for another chef, this is very different from a recipe that's made for uh, a a home cook. Just as um, recipes for dishes that are made in a restaurant have nothing to do with the recipes from a cookery book, because obviously, if you want to serve a stew... Uh, you, you can't start by, by preparing everything and then telling your, your guests you have to wait for two hours before we can serve it. So those are two very different things. And so in the recipes, one is often at a loss and, and thinking, OK, there is a stage missing here, but but what is it? How did they get from A to B? And of course, we have to assume that they knew what they were talking about. By recreating it, by trial and error, you find out, OK, this is how it works. So it's actually been um, a journey of discovery, which has informed my my research as well. And then we come to the very difficult and often intractable question of um, the ingredients and the measures. So -hmm. when it comes to ingredients, of course, um, there are many things that one cannot pick up uh, from from the local grocery store. Um, And so one of the things that I do whenever I travel is that uh, I will always schedule a visit to an altar or several uh, mm-hmm. in order to acquire the, the more unusual things. So over the years, um, um, I've acquired things like musk, ambergris, uh, all of these, um, mastic, all of these ingredients, which, which are also used in, in, in the cooking.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And then of course it comes to measurements. You know, they again, from one chef to another, he will say, add salt now. Now, the chef knows it's a pinch, it's a handful or be generous. In the beginning, you you have to really kind of measure out. And sometimes it, the result is perhaps not as palatable as it should have been. But of course, as, the, as you become more experienced and now I can say with confidence that um, I can easily detect almost exactly what they would have enjoyed in a particular dish. And it's almost by taste now that one can tell, Okay, they would really have enjoyed this or this actually would have tasted differently. And of course, there are limitations because not all ingredients can be found. And even the ones that are found are, of course, not necessarily the same ones. So the present day celery is not necessarily celery of a thousand years ago. Uh, carrots and, and so on and so forth
1: yeah um I mean I love mastic I cook with it I'm obsessed with mastic I talk about it wherever wherever oh, and no. whatever I can <laughs> but I've never cooked with musk or tasted something with musk how is cooking with musk like and where do you find it is there a local atar No, uh, no no, no that no. you can recommend <laughs>
2: Uh, uh, Musk, I have to think back now uh, where I acquired it. Um, I think it may have been in Tunis, uh, in the Souq al Atarin. Uh, I may have acquired it. Uh, the internet is actually also quite useful in that, um, so for instance, um, uh, we're talking about even more ex- ex- exotic ingredients like the, the Myro Balance, the Amlaj, Amlaj, Balilaj, Halilaj, things of that nature, um those are things that, uh, that are very popular in, in India. Uh, those are things that um, it, I acquire uh, uh, on the internet. Um, but so musk, of course, isn't used very often, and it really is there to, to uh, perfume the dish, if you like. Yeah. Um, mastic, I have to say, I'm quite surprised that you use it a lot because one of the things that I have a problem with the bitterness it, the use, yes it's so powerful because you only use uh, literally a pinch yeah. but it's it's so bitter that i find it very difficult to to uh, disguise it one of the other things that used to bother me in the first recreations was the vinegar so almost every recipe you need vinegar and you, you after that. a while i really couldn't stand the vinegariness anymore but then, of course, you start to think, well, hang on, uh, we're using present-day vinegar. But, in fact, they had many different types of vinegar. And yeah. so recently, we made homemade vinegar. Oh, no way. And grape vinegar, which is absolutely fantastic. And lo and behold, uh, we remade the sigbaj, which is a vinegar stew from the Persian Sikh vinegar, barge, stew, so extremely vinegary. And uh, I made it with the the homemade vinegar, also a recipe from, of course, the Middle Ages, and lo and behold, the taste was not at all uh, as vinegary as the other one. So here, once again, when a chef says vinegar, sometimes they do specify wine vinegar, but often Uh, they would have used, this is the only way to explain the different types of vinegar as recipes, Mm -hmm. they would have used specific vinegars for specific recipes. It makes perfect sense, just as today we use balsamic vinegar uh, in salads, but we wouldn't use it to fry. Um, Mm -hmm. So it's all of these things. So in answer to your question, well, yes, uh, uh, we make a lot of recipes Uh, And of course, the Instagram is only part of it because I also have the blog where I also every week have at least one or two uh, uh, entries um, where I also get a chance to give a a little bit more background. Um, So there's the recipes, but then there's also um, a series of uh, what I call Spotlight, where I discuss um, ingredients, where I discuss uh, kitchen hacks, uh, you know, what What would the cooks have, have done? Um, or cooking methods, uh, for instance, the types of ovens they would have used for which dishes and so on. So, yes, it's... Um, it's a lot of work. It's a lot of work. It takes up a, a lot of time, but it, but it's commitment. a... commitment. That's, that's a really,
1: really inspiring. I mean, I do have my own Instagram page, Sofra Kitchen, and I try as much... Yes, as I love it. To share. Thank you. To share um, what I encounter in my research on food history. Um, but yeah, like cooking almost every week is... <laughs> Extremely difficult. I can only imagine how it's like with you chairing a department, working on a book and, and managing a blog and doing your own research as well. So this is amazing. Um, And on Mastic, by the way, I usually, first of all, the bitterness definitely, it has to, a little goes a long way with Mastic. Yeah. And I use it with rice dishes. It's something that my grandmother and my mother and yes. a lot of um, Egyptians do it with mastic rice, absolutely. Uh, and things that are milky and sweet, uh, yeah. and some halabiya, like rice pudding. Yes, absolutely, a rice pudding. Good rice pudding has a nice, you know, rice, uh, good amount of um, uh, rose water and mastic, and that's like heaven for me, really. <laughs> um, I want to go back to the one point about health. Um, and the link to medicinal knowledge. And it seems like it was such an important thing. I mean, almost, you know, in in a lot of these recipes, uh, I want to say almost all of them, uh, you'd correct me if I'm wrong, there is references to um, its medicinal uses, its uh, balancing properties to, you know, the humoral, uh, linking back to the humoral theory. Um... Do you think that was the case for the normal average Egyptian in the 15th century? Were they that health conscious, or is it is it perhaps a case of um, cookbooks being um, expectations rather than what was um, you know reality at the time? Were were, were they things that people just you know, thought of as ideal and they they uh, looked up or, uh, you know, thought that perhaps I'll, I'll write it in hopes that people would follow it. Or was that perhaps a more reflection of how things were like
2: I, I to, to some extent, because the, the picture is a little bit more um, complicated, I think. Um, the, the uh, amount of, of uh, medical information varies considerably. There are some um, works uh, that have none whatsoever. There are those that have a very high content and where there's even separate, El Warak is a good example, where there's uh, chapters devoted to the um, medicinal uh, properties of ingredients and, and so on and so forth. The Sultan's Feast is somewhere in between. Um, that's one thing. And the other is that the cookery books, uh, those that have medical information, so the, the medical information comes in a, in a couple of guises. The first is, as you pointed out, so there's a dish or an ingredient that says, OK, this is good for, you know, in, in, in cold climates or this is good for whatever. But there's also a category of um, uh, recipes that are clearly only medicinal. Mm. Uh, but that's not to say that they weren't also enjoyed for their own sake. And one of the things that is um, very significant in medieval Islamic medicine, and uh, if we take the, the, we always have to go back to the greats, Razi, Ibn Sina, um, the importance of good taste and medicine. So it has to taste nice as well. And that is, that is very significant. And of course, then that also leads us into religion because uh, in, in medieval Europe, which was suffering under the oppressive weight of the Catholic Church, where you know you can't enjoy life. Uh, in, in the Muslim world, of course, the injunction was the opposite. It was to enjoy the benefits that uh, are given by creation. Now, of course, that is not to say that when when a, a king organized a huge banquet, he did so for religious reasons necessarily. He wanted to show off how rich he was. But there is nonetheless that dimension of enjoying what is made available by God. And also, of course, in terms of sharing uh, in in uh, Muslim uh, arab culture, uh, there is no virtue greater than generosity. there is no vice greater than uh, being a miser being mm. mean and to this day when somebody when you say of somebody that he is mean he's bakhil mm. that is still an insult uh, even uh, just as it was in in pre-islamic times in the days of the Bedouins where really generosity, sharing. And of course, then we have another dimension that's brought in with the big banquets, is that it was a way of the ruler to tie the populace, to tie the citizenry to uh, the ruling family, because we organize a banquet, and of course, everything uh, that uh, is left over would be donated to, to the poor, as zakat. Mm-hmm. So there's, there's a, a, a large number of, of dimensions here, but so the medical information, why was it retained in the Sultan's Feast, if we end with that point? Um, I believe that in that period, probably the intended readership um, wasn't as interested in that aspect, but I think Ibn Mubarak Shah, above all else, so he writes his own recipe book, but he is also a great anthologist. And in fact, he's not the best poet, but he is a great collector of poems. And so his book is also an anthology of past culinary greatness. And of course, little does he know that um, his anthology is very necessary because very soon the world will change completely
1: that's amazing for sure um these are some images uh, that we're seeing from your blog uh, of recipes that you have recreated uh, and we've asked you to perhaps pick only one <laughs> dish that you would be um that you'd present to us uh t- today so you chose um, it sounds really intriguing carrying the name of al-qahira cairo uh, and also you know the fact that it's it's marzipan correct or is it close to marzipan and yes then
2: exactly yeah exactly
1: as a donut and dipped in honey I mean it sounds like <laughs> heaven. <Yeah.
2: laughs> it's it is it is heaven on a plate it's the kind of thing that uh, you know you you start eating uh, and and then it, just one more just one more I won't have lunch one more. I won't have dinner. Uh, I'm still waiting when I can start having lunch again, because I had so many of them. Um, it's, uh, uh, it's a wonderful dish um, for, for, for two reasons. The one is the one that you've just mentioned. It is just um, um, addictive uh, in, uh, uh, in its goodness. Um, and so you're right, so it's essentially, it's almonds and uh, sugar and, and flour. Um, and then, of course, it's kind of uh, kneaded into, into a dough. Mm. And uh, then you have a, a batter. And, uh, of course, they, they, they're dipped in, in the batter. There's also dipping in honey and syrup and, and all those other good things. Um, and then deep fried. Uh, before sprinkling on, uh, you know, uh, pistachios, um, and so it's it's a great dish, uh, in and of itself. So, but it has uh, another dimension which is worth talking about, and it it very neatly brings us back to the very start of our discussion, because the qahiriya is one of those dishes that we find in a number of cookery books. Mm-hmm. It's found, uh, in fact, in five cookery books, oh. ranging from the 13th to the 15th centuries. And what's more, we find it in cookery books from across the Muslim world. So there's a recipe for a Qahiriyya in the anonymous Andalusian cookery book, of which we just saw a manuscript page. Mm-hmm. There's also a Qahiriyah recipe in another Andalusian book cookery book. There's a recipe in a Syrian 13th century cookery book, Al-Wuzlayl al-Habib, that we've already mentioned a couple of times as well in the course of our discussion. And -hmm. then, of course, in uh, Ibn Mubarak Shah's book, as well as in Kenzil Fawaid. So what is interesting here, and you know, you might imagine, well, you know, when it comes to something like this, surely they're more or less the same. Well, if you look closely at the, the recipes, you find out some very interesting things. And the most interesting thing is that none of the recipes have all of the same ingredients. Wow. There is only two ingredients that you find in all of these uh, recipes in the various cookery books. That's sugar. Mm -hmm. and that's flour. That's wonderful. Some cookery books use pistachios and no almonds. Uh, Mm -hmm. Some use... uh, Rose water is another one. Yeah, Rose water, they also... All of them have rose water. Uh, A few have musk as well. But then you have some that have pepper, for instance, pepper, uh, galangal, walnuts Mm. that are put in the recipe of of the Qahiriya.
1: Perhaps regional, uh, regional variations. Yes, exactly.
2: Regional and chronological. Yeah. Sure, uh, sure. You know, so, so it's very interesting to use that as a kind of test case for how, how the cuisine traveled, which is, of course, what is most interesting to, to the food historian, how to travel, how they change. And of course, uh, this uh, uh, suite is one that most people living in the Middle East. Would know without knowing it. You can imagine what it tastes like without even making it, because there are a number of sweets, of course, that are quite similar. Uh, and the use of of uh, juleb, the use of honey, the deep frying, the drenching in syrup—all these wonderful things that, of course, our doctors don't want us to eat in order to protect us from the big bad cholesterol. Uh, but every now and again, uh, when in moderation. Remember, that is another basic principle of uh, uh, Islamic medicine. It, it should be tasty, but it should always be eaten in moderation.
1: Yeah, Except moderation and balance. I suppose like balance, the balance all exactly. the um, the humors and the the hot and the cold and the dry and the and the wet. Um, yeah, something we should definitely wisdom in that. I think we, we, we've we been overlooking that for some centuries. Uh, it's good to get um, a, a refreshed idea with it. Um, uh, jumping to a quick Q&A, what are you reading or watching right now?
2: Um, what, what, am, to food? <laughs> yeah, uh, what am I reading? Um, I'm reading a fantastic book um, that I'm writing a review on. And it's a book um, uh, called A Physician on the Nile. And it's the travelogue by a man called Abdel Latif al-Baghdadi, uh, who um, was in Egypt in the late uh, 12th, early 13th century. Um, mm-hmm. So he met Salah din oh, and wow. he wrote uh, a book about Egypt. Um, it was going to be a big book on the history of Egypt and so on. And it's a wonderful book because, um, well, he's quite the character. He's a physician philosopher, one of these medieval polymaths. He does everything. Mm -hmm. Um, And he makes this very uh, wonderful, uh, uh, writes this wonderful description of Egypt. And so it's a treasure trove of information about Egyptian life and, of course, also food. He discusses the things that the Egyptians eat, the, the special dishes found in in Egypt, Uh, and a a funny fact about him and his interest in food uh, is the fact that he was born in Baghdad, wait for it, in Darb el Faludash. Now if that doesn't predestine you to be a lover of food I don't know what does.
1: Absolutely <laughs> amazing. <laughs> a physician by the Nile you said? A,
2: a physician on the Nile. So um, it's a it's a, a new a new edition and translation of of the book.
1: Thank you for this. Um, I would assume that you would like to shadow him for a day then, <laughs> answering the next question?
2: Um, well, to be honest and to be somewhat cowardly, uh, I'd have to say no, uh, because he's writing in a, in a very, very gruesome period in Egyptian history, because at the beginning of the 13th century, 1200-1202, uh, there is a, a terrible famine and so um, I don't think I'd want to be in that position. Incidentally, the man is also famous because he made two uh, discoveries about human anatomy that, um, in fact, predate uh, the discoveries in Western Europe. So even from that perspective, it's it's an interesting and very important book. Well, I, I'd say if you if I can take anybody, it would have to be the king of poets, Abu Nu'as, because I think he would be a blast to hang out with for a day. And don't forget, I would be able, because that's part of the deal, I hope, is that when I hang out with him, I'll be able to meet all these other wonderful people, all these scholars that were alive uh, at that time. So I think um, it would be a day that I I, I or anybody else (laughs) wouldn't forget, I think.
1: Yeah, that would be one hell of a gang to hang with. <laughs> for sure. um, all right. And other than Qahiriya, what would be your midnight guilty pleasure?
2: Um, I try not to eat late uh, in the evening for health reasons, uh, but um, I, I do enjoy. Chips uh, for, for, or fries, as uh, depending on uh, which part of the world you're from. So uh, I, I guess uh, chips um, would be kind of a, a guilty pleasure in that sense.
1: Chips are not crisps, right? Exactly. Okay. Uh, and then, what dish reminds you most of home?
2: Uh, oh, that would be. What
1: is home? What, what is home to you? Is it Durham?
2: Yes, uh, Darren, but uh, uh, home now would be, I guess, um, um, a Korean barbecue because we eat a lot of Korean food as well.
1: I apologize for some of the noise my neighbors are doing construction in the house so if, if that is um, a little noisy apologize for that. Um, all right, well I wish that we had some time for doing a quick um, audience Q a. Um, But I do um, see that we ran out of time. It's been an amazing conversation. There are some really valuable comments that um, I've been quickly going through uh, in the comments from Charles, um, commenting on uh, perhaps a theory of the etymology of Mur. And uh, Tutmage um, linking to present day Kaz- Kazakh.
0: Um, yes, indeed. as
1: well linking to aspic, which is really interesting. Uh, thank you for that. And um, I'm just going through quickly. Miranda seems to have forgotten the health benefits of ingredients like um, saffron and cumin in today's time. Um, just a quick one, we'll take. Uh, this uh, only question: Can you identify, Daniel, a point in history where these ingredients moved into the culinary world, leaving behind their medicinal qualities? Now we add them uh, because the recipe says says so, rather than knowing why. If you can brief from- that, I,
2: I think that must have been very early on, because you could argue that when we cook, uh, we don't necessarily think of the the health benefits, and um, I mean, especially something like saffron. Um, you know, it's it's kind of the, called the Queen of Spices for a reason. Um, so I think that that must have happened very early on. There is a link, uh, however, in some cases that, that might be worth pointing out, and that is in the use of sugar. Um, sugar, of course, also introduced into Europe by, by the Arabs. Mm-hmm. Um, sugar initially, of course, people only used honey. Mm. And um, sugar um, was actually the result of um, physicians um, that came to Baghdad from a place called Jundishapur in in the east, um, in in Afghanistan now. Um, And um, so sugar uh, was uh, very expensive, but was also endowed with health benefits, how times have changed. So uh, this is an, an example where at least in the beginning, but of course, soon afterwards, the medicinal, as, as you said earlier, the medicinal aspects are forgotten and people simply use them for their, um, um, because of the flavors and and um, culinary enjoyment.
1: Amazing. Um, there are, there's one more question, but perhaps um it's it's about the influence of uh, Arab uh, Andalusian cuisine specifically, not not Arab, Andalusian cuisine on European culture. And then um, Raid is also requesting to have a short explanation for the disappearance of certain flavors. But unfortunately, um, we're really pressed with time. I'd love to wrap up. Um, unfortunately, sadly, <laughs> I have to wrap up. Uh, but you, whoever sent the questions, perhaps can reach out to Professor Daniel. Uh, this Good is an email. And we we have um, so your Instagram handle is medieval Arab cooking and your blog is eat like a sultan uh, and I'm sure um, you'll uh, you'll be able to get back to them with uh, helpful um, and valuable answers uh, with that I thank you professor Daniel so much for this conversation really informative, very interesting, and we'll have to have another part two to continue (laughs) because the questions were were not done with the questions. I myself have a lot more. Uh, Would love to perhaps do that again at another chance. Um, Thank you, Professor, for joining us, and thank you, everyone, for tuning in uh, and reaching out with the comments and questions and joining us tonight. Uh, I'm Salma Sirri, and um, I was your host for today's Fikra Matbakh talk. Uh, To give us feedback, uh, you can uh, head to our uh, website. And uh, as always, any contributions are um, uh, really appreciated. Thank you very much. And good evening. Good morning. Good
2: night, wherever you are. Thank you so much, uh, Salma. It was wonderful. Thank you.
0: Hey, I hope you enjoyed that episode. If you'd like to learn more about what we do, go to hafiketa.com where you can learn about our Zoom events, our live events in 30 different chapters around the world, our social media presence, and our podcasts and YouTube stuff. You should know that everything we do is all towards a mission of converting passive interest in the histories and cultures of the Arab world into an active intellectual curiosity. By listening to this, you're a part of that movement, so thank you for being here. If you'd like to support our work, go to afikra.comslash support and join the hundreds of people around the world who make this work possible. Thanks.